With just 12 days until Thanksgiving, we thought, what better time to do a show on cooking? Good morning. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. On this morning's show, we'll drop in on a cooking class for parents and their kids in New York City. We'll step back in time to learn what life in the kitchen was like in the 19th century and get some tips on preparing that big Thanksgiving Day meal. In our heads, we have that there's no difference between a fresh bird and a frozen bird, but that really is propaganda from the poultry industry. That's all coming up this morning on Cityscape. Glad you're with us. Kitchens today can have a lot of bells and whistles, including extra sinks, flat-screen TVs, and a second dishwasher just for fine crystal and china. But what's interesting about all of that? When we decided to do a show with a cooking theme, we thought it would be much cooler to check out a kitchen from a bygone era. So we headed out to historic Richmond town on Staten Island to visit one pretty old kitchen. My name is Felicity Beale. I'm Director of Education here at Historic Richmond Town. My name is Carlotta DeFillo, and I cook in this beautiful kitchen with this open hearth. Carlotta, tell us about this kitchen. What a miraculous place we're in. I think so, too. The kitchen was built in around 1820, added on to a colonial house from 1740. And when this kitchen was built, there were 13 people living in the house, according to the census records. So they were cooking not only for their 13-person household, but also for the people that worked on the farm seasonally. We know we can cook for up to 40 in here. What was the name of that first family who lived in this house, Felicity? The first person that lived here and who caused the house to be built was Joseph Guyon. The house then passed to his nephew, also called Joseph Guyon, and then it went to the Barger family, and then it becomes a little intricate, but Guyon's lakes and Tyson's were the families who were here for the longest amount of time. I love the smell in here, Carlotta. What is the smell? It's years and years of wood smoke permeating the air and the ceilings and the walls. It's just, for me, delicious. I can tell you that. I think so, too. Yeah. People remark on it when they come into the house. Some love it, some hate it, but they all notice it. What are the kinds of things that have been cooked in here through the years? Lots and lots of bread, first of all, in the brick oven. A lot of soups and stews, roasts. Lots of sweets, I dare say, because that's the recipes you find written down. A lot of desserts. Not everyday things. Everyday things people write down less because they know it in their heads. And what kinds of desserts were people eating? Lots of cake, pie, pie, lots of all kinds of pies. Fruit that was grown right around here on Staten Island? Staten Island was well known for its orchards and fruit trees and berries also. So yes, lots of every kind of fruit pie you could think of was made. And jams and jellies with the fruits also to preserve them. Felicity, why don't you describe this kitchen a little bit more for us? This is radio, so people can't see it. So so do your best and tell us what we're seeing around here. The ceiling is very low. It's a measure of heat conservation. The fireplace is so big that three people could walk into it side by side with their elbows sticking out, but they would have to duck. It would hit most people about at the bottom of their chins. Right next to the fireplace, there's a big brick oven that I'd like to show you. Radio people can't see that it's five feet deep, but maybe you can hear the echo. 
Yeah, Let's take try. us over to this oven. So let me just stick my <laughs> microphone in there. And why don't you talk into that oven while I do that, Felicity? Well, when we when we bake in this oven, Carlotta has the fire going for about two hours, and the smoke very cleverly goes up a chimney that's built right into the oven that brings the smoke into the chimney of the fireplace since they're right next door to each other. There's the difference in sound, by the way. We're now outside of the oven. <laughs> the other visual feature of the fireplace is that it's got a really it's got buckets underneath it. I was going to say there are sound effects. Talk about sound effects, buckets. And there's a large swinging crane that makes cooking in this well-to-do fireplace very convenient since you don't have to go scrambling into the fireplace, but you can pull the swinging crane out. Can you open that door to the oven for me one more time? Because quite frankly, Carlotta, I would have never have known that was an oven. <laughs> no, it's, it's fool your eye. People don't always know until they see behind it. If we go past the fireplace, we'll see a dough tray that was made for this very kitchen for Elizabeth Lake, who lived here in the 1800s and made, as Carlotta mentioned, she made a lot of bread here. It was, it's an easy thing to make and feed a lot of people. A dough tray looks like a bowl, a rectangular wooden bowl up on legs covered with a tabletop, or it looks like a table with a miniature coffin underneath it. It's a great place to put dough to rise if you're in a cold kitchen and you want to be able to keep the dough warm. Bread dough gets warm from the action of your kneading it. And then when you put it in the dough tray, that warmth can be conserved by the wooden box that's around it. The dough tray also gets impregnated over the years with the yeast that you're using. So that also helps the bread to rise. We do not use the dough tray in that way anymore. It's really a unique and wonderful thing that we still have this dough tray that was made for Elizabeth Lake in this very kitchen. So we don't use it up by using it. We look at it and we're happy to have it. And you still have Elizabeth's table right here in the middle of the room, right? That's the very table that we use to make the bread dough on. Knead the bread dough, mix the ingredients. Underneath the dough tray, there's a labor-saving device that was made to cook meat. And I'd like to show you the sounds of this meat cooker. So I've just put the reflector oven right on the hearth, and if Carlotta was actually cooking meat in this oven, when her years of experience told her that the meat was perhaps roasted on one side, she would be opening the oven door... 
and getting to the crank on the side and latching the spit or the crank into a new spot in the oven to roast the other side. And this is why you don't need a recipe for everything you cook to recreate 18th or 19th century dinner because this oven is a procedure more than a recipe. Here's the oven, there's the fire. You have to know how to manage your fire, and maybe Carlotta can say something about fire management. Actually, we did grow up in a house with a fireplace and a coal stove in the kitchen, but we never had reflector ovens to use. So no, I learned to cook in a fireplace by watching the person who did this job before me and working alongside her, just as a little girl would learn from her mother or her grandmother, her aunties, to cook for her family. So I learned by doing. Is it great fun to cook in this type of setting? Yes, (laughs) it's better than anything. It's just wonderful. You're really beaming. Why is it so great? It smells good. It feels good. You feed people. You're surrounded by history when you do this, but it's, it's so immediate. It's not like a microwave that's electric and kind of cold, even though hot. You've got real fire and smells and crackles and sounds, and it's, it's wonderful. And using, using the fire... You watch the flames, the bright flames reflect in the tin reflector oven and brown the meat quickly, and then you can let the fire die down so that you have embers, which actually give off more heat, even though not as much flame, and they cook more thoroughly, I guess you would say. How hot does it get in here? Surprisingly, except if it's high summer and we're baking in the oven as well as using the fireplace, it stays comfortable even in the summer. It's about 10 degrees cooler in the kitchen than it is outdoors on a hot summer day because of good cross-ventilation, because of shadows right by the windows so that the sun doesn't pour directly in. The heat from the fireplace, 90% of it, they say, goes right up the chimney, which is great in the summer, not so excellent in the winter. What kind of meat are you cooking in that reflector? Uh, my favorite thing to cook is, is roast beef. Uh, it cooks chicken. It'll cook anything. It'll even cook. I've cooked meat with bone in, although I wasn't so sure I could. But I tried it, and I, you can. And how does the flavor differ cooked this way? It gets smoky. Just a little, if you do it right. Just a little. It's kind of like the extra tang that you get when you barbecue something. But you can do it in the house. And you actually have a recipe book, right, that you follow? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have lots of cookbooks. We use Lydia Maria Child, which was Boston, I think, in the 1830s. We do also a lot of Dutch recipes because although Mrs. Lake herself wasn't Dutch, there's certainly Dutch heritage here on Staten Island. So we, use, we like to use early Dutch recipes as well. Uh, Van Cortland recipes we have, uh, Rensselaer from upstate New York. So we try to use period recipes. And we have some Staten Island recipes too. Margaret Point Garretson wrote a cookbook that we have some of her dessert recipes. And who is she? A housewife on Staten Island in the early 1800s. So we we like to do as authentic as we can. We try to cook things that are in season, different times of the year. No pumpkin pie in July. No apple pie in July. Felicity, you're sifting through a cookbook here. Which cookbook is this? This is the one that's like 
the cookbook that a housewife kept for herself. If her neighbors cooked something delicious and they were willing to share the recipe, an 18th or 19th century housewife would have added the recipe to her own book and would have kept it in her kitchen. The old recipes are real interesting in their style of writing. They're not recipes so much as reminders to myself of what I already know, which makes it very interesting when you're trying to recreate the same dish from someone's notes to themselves. Can you give me an example of one of the recipes in here? Read one off for us. Oh, here's one of my favorites. If you want to try this at home, make sure it has some contact with a fire. Cook it It's wacky as it sounds. Cook it, if you must, outside on a fire escape on a hibachi. Do something to get fire in with it. But it's a a recipe for crumpets, and it's translated into modern-day terms so that folks can use it instead of guessing. Um, It's a package of yeast, a quarter cup of water, two tablespoons of sugar, a teaspoon of salt, three tablespoons of butter, a cup of milk, one egg, and three cups of flour. You mix the wet ingredients, add the yeast, which you've proofed already by putting it in warm water with a little sugar to make sure it's going to rise and that all the yeast dissolves. Then you stir it in, so you stir in the flour and you beat, you let the yeast work, until the dough is doubled in bulk. You beat it again, and then you shape it into portions... English muffin size portions. A little smaller than an English muffin, so that when it rises, it's the size of an English muffin, because really, it's very much like an English muffin. And then you're going to cook it on something resembling a hot griddle with butter on it. And my favorite part is when we have currant jelly that was made here on the site, so it's also got that yummy firewood, fireplace smoke smell in it. When we've got currant jelly left over from our traditional dinners from the summer, and we can butter the crumpet with freshly churned butter, and then put some currant jelly on it, and then put the reflector oven roasted chicken on. Carlotta, let me ask you, Thanksgiving, of course, is coming up. What would have been a traditional Thanksgiving meal back in the 1800s? The kind of meal that we think of for a traditional Thanksgiving meal is like a New England harvest fall kind of dinner. And indeed, there are lots of references to mince pies and apple pies and pumpkin pies, even for meals all during the the fall. But roast turkey you can do in a reflector oven, all the pies in the, in the brick oven, boiling vegetables over the over the on the swinging crane, turnips and onions and All the hard, firm root vegetables are going to be put away in the basement for, in the cellar, root cellar for storage for winter. So that's the kind of thing you'd have around. Our traditional Thanksgiving meal is just, I don't want to say everyday food, but in a way it is, of course, what people would have been eating. 
I would imagine, though, that the turkeys were killed right somewhere around here. Oh, sure, sure. To this day, there were turkeys on Staten Island. But yeah, poultry was a real easy thing on a farm because it runs around until you need it. What was the hardest part for you coming to work here and cooking in this kitchen? I know you mentioned that you learned from the people who came before you, but what was the hardest thing? The hardest thing was the actual weight of the cooking pots and carrying firewood and water. Those are all heavy things. The reflector oven being tin and the water buckets themselves are lightweight, but once they get full of stuff and the cast iron cooking pots, those are heavy. That was probably the hardest thing to get used to. And how much longer does it take to prepare a meal here than it would in a more conventional kitchen? Once you get the fire, it's no longer than it would take you if you had a gas fire at home or an electric fire at home. Microwaves are faster, but anything else, the fireplace, once you get the heat, and that could take, I admit, 20 minutes to an hour to get a sufficient amount of heat. But once you've got the heat, not much longer. Felicity, what advice would you give to someone who wants to have a more traditional Thanksgiving, you know, just sort of have a throwback to the 1800s in their home on Thanksgiving? Remember that cranberry sauce does not come out of a can. It's so easy to boil cranberries in a little bit of water and some sugar, and it makes such a difference. Cranberry sauce, you know, is it's an option to have bumpy cranberries in it. Instead of having it be a clear, red, yummy thing, it can be even more delicious with whole cranberries in it. And if this frightens you, the recipe is right on the package, and I would recommend look at the directions and then add some sugar, take away some water, and if you want to make it spunky and modern, add some oranges, which people in early days certainly would not have done. And be aware that, again, you're, you're saying hello to a Native American, North American plant when you eat cranberries. Carlotta, you immediately nodded your head in agreement on that cranberry sauce thing. Of course, because cranberry sauce cooked from scratch is a whole other treat. Carlotta, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Felicity, thank you. Thanks for coming to visit. Felicity Beale and Carlotta DeFillo are with Historic Richmond Town on Staten Island. If you want to check out their 19th century kitchens for yourself, they do tours. You can learn more at historicrichmondtown.org. You're listening to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. From one kitchen to another. This one at the Culinary Institute of America at Astor Center in Lower Manhattan. The state-of-the-art facility offers a wide range of cooking classes. We checked out one called Cooking with Your Teen, Thanksgiving favorites. My name is Carol Murphy Klein, and I'm a visiting instructor in the Food Enthusiasts Department of the Culinary Institute of America. Today we're going to be making um, some of the more traditional food memories that um, hopefully you'll enjoy this holiday season and pass along um, to your families. Today's class is teens and parents, which is a really great time for the kids to bond with their parents and vice versa, and they're making their Thanksgiving favorite dishes. Hi, I'm Madeline Warner, and um, we're from just outside of Philadelphia. Everything I cook is Italian, basically, so I wanted to try to, um, you know, learn something more traditional because my Thanksgivings were never traditional. We never had a turkey, 
And my dad would always make something different, like capon, or but he never, <laughs> never turkeys. And I thought it would be something fun for us to do. I'm Joel Werner. Uh, I enjoy eating. It's uh, <laughs> sort of a passion. Um, <laughs> I find like cooking to science, and it's like really intense. And like thinking about it now, it's something that's like so intricate, and it's hard to be balanced at it. And I think it'd be like a good skill to have. And the first thing I'm going to ask you to work on is making filling for your pie. And you can see it says pick a pie on the bottom. You can make pumpkin, pecan, or apple. I'm Faith Wells, and I'm from Haymarket, Virginia, um, and I'm 13. We're making the pie crust dough. I like to make a lot, so um, I don't know. I just really like it. Or if you like a particular one, you can do whatever you'd like for the pie. I'm James Perkins, and um, I'm from Cold Spring, New York, with her. I'd like to, le to learn what it's kind of like to be a chef and um, to learn what what to do on Thanksgiving. Right now we're seeing if our pie dough can stick together. Um, right now it's looking like it can stick together and we're going to roll it out Yeah, now we're going to roll it out and let it rest. Just helping out with my mom made me see that it's really fun and you, if you enjoy what you do, then you're just going to live a happy life. I love cooking. I love cooking with them. I love showing people how to enjoy cooking more because maybe I'm showing them a way to make it easier, more efficient, more delicious. Now, if this were a hot summer day, and it is pretty hot in here with the ovens going, but if it were, I would have this in my freezer for 10 minutes, the bowl, I'd have the food processor in the freezer for 10 minutes, I'd have the flour, I'd put everything in the freezer. Cooking with your with teen, one of the classes offered so at the Culinary Institute of America at Astor Center in Lower Manhattan. That class reminds us of how Thanksgiving is a family affair. But when you're the one doing the bulk of the cooking, Thanksgiving can be a headache. Rick Rogers is the author of a book called Thanksgiving 101. I asked him for some tips on how to get through the big day without a migraine. You really want to start thinking about your menu a couple of weeks out because every time you go to the market, pick up a little something. You know you're going to need canned pumpkin flour, butter you can put in the freezer. There's all sorts of things that you can do ahead of time because you really want to be in the express lane on Tuesday or Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Talking about the express lane, I guess if you go early, it helps to beat the lines at the grocery store. Yeah, you really only want to just get the perishables, produce, and a nice fresh turkey. So next year, just keep on looking for all the things that you can buy ahead of time. Let's talk turkey for a moment. You say a fresh turkey. Now, should I purchase a fresh turkey, or is it okay to buy a frozen one? Well, you know, in our heads, we have that there's no difference between a fresh bird and a frozen bird, but that really is propaganda from the poultry industry. You know, they have to get 75 million turkeys on everybody's table in one day. So if some of those turkeys aren't frozen, they're really going to have quite a snafu. So they want you to think that a frozen turkey is a premium product. Frankly, for my money, nothing beats a fresh bird. They are not that expensive, and uh, they're very easy to get at the supermarket. I bet you're not going to have to special order one. You could walk into any supermarket and pick one up. So if you've never tried a fresh bird, try one. Frozen birds are a pain in the neck because they take a full 
24 hours for every five pounds of frozen bird to defrost in the refrigerator. Is there a difference in taste when we put those birds on the table? Absolutely, because a a frozen bird is always going to have been injected with artificial flavorings and oils and things like that in order to keep it moist, because the poultry industry knows that turkeys are very lean. When you freeze them and defrost them, they dry out. How many different ways are there to prepare a turkey? The ones that we really have to be concerned about in our neck of the woods is really just roasting, because there's very few of us that are going to be in the New York area that are going to be deep-frying a bird or grilling a bird. Deep-frying is dangerous, too. You can set your whole house on fire. You can if you don't have your wits about you. I think that it's interesting that the Underwriters Laboratory, which puts safety designations on all appliances, refuses to put the UL on any deep-frying, turkey-frying unit. That says something to me. But we're moving right on to roasting turkey anyway. (laughs) And the best way to roast a turkey, 325 degrees. The biggest problem people have with the turkey is that the white meat dries out. Here's the solution. Before the turkey goes into the oven, I want you to put a piece of foil over the breast area, not on the wings, not on the thighs, not on the drumsticks, because those are the dark meat, and you want them to get as much heat as possible. What's happening with the foil is that the heat is deflecting off the breast, and it's going to slow the cooking down in that area. So during your last hour of your estimated roasting time, which is going to be about 15 minutes a pound, Take the foil off, baste the bird a couple of times, and I guarantee you that the bird will get evenly browned. How important is it to baste, and how frequently should we do it? I've changed my mind about basting over the years. I can't imagine how many hundreds of turkeys I've roasted. The thing about about basting is that those juices are not going to go down through that thick skin into the bird. All it's going to do is help, help the browning a little bit. So I would say you could get your basting down to about once an hour or or not even do it at all. What recommendations do you offer, Rick, for sides? Well, you have to really be careful with your side dishes because there's so many darn side dishes that are traditional with the Thanksgiving meal that that table can get very crowded very quickly, not to mention your stomach. (laughs) I mean, there's there's a limit to how much you can eat. So be very careful about how many side dishes you have, and be sure that you mix them up. What I mean is, people will say, oh, I brought a little something, all you have to do is stick it in the oven. It's really easy to have a traffic jam in that oven if you have too many baked goods. So be sure that you have some side dishes that can be cooked on the top of the stove, too. For example, I will opt for fresh sautéed green beans or baby carrots on top of the stove rather than a baked green bean casserole, that one more thing that I have to put in the oven. Is there a way, Rick, to spice up traditional side dishes? You want to mix things up. I will make my scallop sweet potatoes with streusel on top. So we have two sweet potatoes. One's old-fashioned and one's easy. Same thing with cranberry sauce. I love to make homemade cranberry sauce. My brothers love canned cranberry sauce. We have both, because how hard is it for me to open up a can of cranberries? What about drinks? That's something else that you really have to pay attention to as a host, because 
Um, it's easy just to keep saying to people, I'll have some more wine, have some more wine, but you know, you're responsible for the safety of those people on the way home. So be sure that you have something delicious that's non-alcoholic, too. I love sparkling fruit juices, sparkling apple cider, things like that. Is there a formula you can use, Rick, to make sure that you have an ample amount of food, depending on how many guests you're going to have? Well, I think you want to start with the turkey there. The biggest question is how much turkey should I buy? You want at least one pound of turkey for every person. Now, remember that you got the skin, you have the bones, and you have the giblets. All of those things are kind of adding false weight to your weight of the turkey. So in order to be sure that you have seconds and or leftovers, one pound per person. Do you have any suggestions for creative uses of your leftovers? Mexican food. It really uses leftover turkey very well. Turkey tacos, turkey enchiladas, turkey tostadas. You mentioned, Rick, how important it is to make sure you have enough room on your table. Uh But what about the table itself as far as decorating it? You don't want to break the budget with decorating. So I like to do things that get a double use. For example, I will put a big bowl of fruit in the middle of the table, apples, pears, all different colors, all different shapes. Maybe stick some leaves in there. This way, it's not just a floral arrangement that could end up in the garbage on Friday. You can use that fruit for a couple of weeks afterwards to enjoy. Persimmons, grapes, look for things that say autumn harvest. All right, Rick Rogers, the book is Thanksgiving 101. It's out from HarperCollins. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. And look at that. The turkey's done. That's slang for the show's over. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producer McCall Neria. Remember, you can get past editions of Cityscape and learn how to podcast the show at WFUV.org. Have a great weekend.